Dobry wieczór and welcome to the Bohemian podcast with Piet Coleman and Travis Doe. Tonight I share with our Bohemian audience part one of Past Access presents The Great War Revisited. We hope you enjoy the program that originally was shown on YouTube in November of 2020. Without further delay, here's part one of The Great War Revisited. Now, here's your host, Pete Coleman. The war to end all wars was an early 20th century event that would shape and continue to shape our 21st century world today. The centennial of the war was met with reverence, pomp and circumstance, and thoughtful reflection and remembrances all across the world. Past access followed many of these commemorative events from 2014 through the November 11, 2018 conclusion. Within those four years, we traveled across Europe and to the States, visited seven cities, five battlefields, and countless museums and cemeteries of the fallen, all from the seat of my wheelchair. In the end, it took one full year to complete this special edition of Past Access, and we hope to bring you some unique insight into this horrific human event that ushered in the fall of empires, created new nation-states with dramatic power shifts, and affected tens of millions of lives. This is Past Access, The Great War Revisited. Here in Vienna, the seat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I'm Pete Coleman, and welcome to Past Access, Special Edition, World War I, The Great War. In this episode, we're going to take you all across Europe. We're going to Belgium, to the fields of Ypres uh, and Passchendaele. We're going to the bombed-out areas of the Somme in northern France, to Paris. We'll be in Prague to visit the remnants of what was the Czech Legion caught behind enemy lines in, in Russia. We're going to be here in Vienna to take in the, what happened with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the beginnings of the war. We're also going to Dresden, Germany to see the viewpoint from the German side of the argument. So on this show, you're hopefully going to get a, a wide range of, of emotions and viewpoint to make history come alive for you. And we're going to do it from my seat of my wheelchair for the entire show. Today, we're going into the Military History Museum here in Vienna, uh, a very special exhibit we're going to kick off our show with, and that is actually the car that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in. On June 28, 1914, the horrors of World War I began in Sarajevo. So let's go inside and start our journey for the Great War. We know the Great War to be a contest of willpower and determination as nations squared off against each other technological advancements of war, grinding away at a generation of men. But to fully understand this conflict, we must start at the beginning, the flashpoint. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand set off a powder keg of military alignments among the powers of the world. But it is here in Vienna where we can examine the artifact of that summer day in 1914. Within these walls of the Military History Museum in Vienna, sits the scarred Grafenstift limousine alongside the blood-stained clothes of the Archduke and his wife Sophie. And behind me is the actual car where Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated on June 28 at 11 a.m. in 1914. You can actually see the bullet hole that Princep, a part of the Black Hand Society, shot into the car, killing Sophie and then injuring and then killing Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
the death of the Archduke started a wave that toppled a very delicate geopolitical house of cards. Late July 1914 saw this powder keg explode with Russia backing Serbia and Austria-Hungary getting their famous blank check from Germany. In less than a month, World War I was on. When deciding what areas to visit during the centennial, I made a list of places I would have the best chance of seeing history from a wheelchair. Yet I knew much of what I would encounter would be physically challenging. Still, I needed to pay tribute at some of the fields and cemeteries of the fallen. First up, the town of Ypres in Belgium. Touring Ypres, Passchendaele, and the tragedy of the salient would be a challenging test for a chair user. However, with some assistance on and off the bus, the 13-hour battlefield tour departing from Brussels would be possible. The first thing you notice visiting the city of Ypres is the town itself. The quaint streets and buildings look untouched by both world wars, but looks can be deceiving. The large and imposing cloth hall dominates the skyline and houses the In Flanders Field Museum. It is difficult to believe that this town was completely recreated post-World War I as it was razed to the ground by artillery in not just one, but five major offensive near the town of Ypres. This completely wheelchair-accessible museum is a must-stop to get the needed background on the importance and tragedy of these battles. A specialized wrist fob is given with the entrance fee that, when scanned, will activate and translate learning stations into your desired language, allowing you to interact with exhibits throughout the museum. It is here that you will learn of the introductory hardships of the early days of the war in 1914. The first time the Germans used chlorine gas against the unsuspecting Allied forces in 1915, and the nearly unspeakable living conditions in the muddy Passchendaele quagmire of death in 1917. I would tour some of these locations on this day before coming back to this town's Menin Gate for the daily tribute to the fallen. Volunteer musicians stand at attention under this arch to play a British Army solemn tune called The Last Post. The evening traffic is stopped, the throngs of tourists grow quiet, and all you hear is the clicking of the military boots of the trumpeters stepping into position. As they start to play, my eyes glance over the more than 54,000 engraved names of Commonwealth soldiers killed. Just to give you an idea of the sheer loss, the Second Battle of Ypres had an Allied, German, and civilian combined killed number estimated at 700,000 people. It is truly amazing to see the residents of Ypres continue to pay their respects to the fallen, year after year after year. And, uh, this is a, one of the things that's been going on for the first few years and then every day since, uh, I think for the probably uh, last 60 years. And it's a way to commemorate the fallen that uh, have no name on these walls behind me. This ceremony started in 1928 and was only interrupted during the Nazi occupation in World War II. This ceremony is reverent, it is solemn, and altogether poignant to all that witness it. We leave through the Menin Gate to return later in the day. For now, we venture several kilometers away towards the once muddy battlefields that saw the first gas attacks in 1915. 
Tonight we're actually here at uh, Flanders Fields, that was written by Colonel John McRae of the Canadian Insurgent Forces. Uh, right behind me is where he had the inspiration uh, of the sheer horror of putting people back together after war um, that inspired him to write the, the story on Flanders Fields, a very famous poem about World War One. Lieutenant Colonel John McRae was a Canadian medic that was mourning the loss of a close friend during the early bloody days of Ypres in May of 1915. The blood and gore that McRae saw coming across his makeshift hospital gurneys must have been horrifying, even for a seasoned war surgeon like himself. This war was different, however, as too were the effects on soldiers from gas attacks, shell shock, and near obliteration from modern machine gun fire and exploding shells. McRae pushed through the long hours in Belgium, 12 straight days of OR work, and then he took a break, walked outside to clear his head. He then wrote 15 lines, a poem that would be celebrated for generations, but for all different reasons. It was the poem called In Flanders Fields. As you can see, I'm wearing my poppy here, and it's a very appropriate thing you might see during uh, November and early November for people wearing things for Armistice Day. And the reason for that is actually found in one of these great poems here. There are so many literary giants that the war had um, allowed them to kind of put their feelings uh, down on paper for the rest of the world to see about the horrors of war and the loss of innocence and, and youth. Um, I'm thinking of Joyce Kilmer, uh, thinking of uh, Sassoon or Owens or, or the person I'm going to read to you right now, John McRae. In Flanders Fields, in Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns, amid below. The guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. In Flanders Fields and the symbol of the poppy are still cornerstones to the Remembrance Day we celebrate today. McRae never saw the end of the war. At 1.30 a.m. on January 28, 1918, McRae died of double pneumonia and meningitis, most likely contracted through the exposure with German poison gas at Ypres. The story of Ypres was far from over. Just a little over two years from the Second Battle of Ypres, the third engagement would begin, which included a hellscape experience of water, mud, and blood, known as Passchendaele. For many a soldier, the experiences of war were a mixed bag of horror, honor, and brotherhood. For those that survived this experience, the war would forever shape their lives. Holding on to the memories of kinship through photographs was a special treasure for men on all sides of the war. The soldier vest camera documented their times in this great conflict. Bringing the news home of the triumphs and horrors of war was much more difficult in the Great War years. Today, smartphones and web services interconnect us in ways incomprehensible to the generation that fought in World War I. 
Communicating across the world in seconds is an afterthought in the 21st century. In 1914, this, of course, was not the case. One of the things that many families gave their, their loved ones when they went off to war was a camera, something very close to like, something like this. And this is a Kodak camera made in Canada. They had made in the United States and there were several different brands too. They were called the soldier vest camera because basically it folded up into something you could put into your vest pocket. So the vest pocket camera uh, really was revolutionary. This was extremely needed. You could take pictures of your buddies. You could take uh, images of the war. And what was interesting was that you could send them back home. A lot of newspapers paid big money to families for these pictures that were developed on 127 uh, film. These small, expandable cameras house 127 film, and the kit cost around $7.10 in 1914, or adjusted to current inflation, to $180 today. So not a cheap gift for a soldier going abroad, but for many Brits, Canadians, Germans, and Yanks, this was technology that they had to have to record some of the biggest moments of their young lives. Soon, simple snapshots of war buddies and drill exercises were being replaced by the horrors and hardships of war. Homefront newspapers were offering big money to soldiers or their family members to use their photos. Britain's war office saw this as a potential problem to control sensitive troop movement information or risk losing the war of public opinion by people seeing horrific images of war. The problem was, is that, especially in Great Britain, uh, the British government did not want people to see this. Uh, remember, this is the Kitchener sort of uh, era of propaganda, and you did not want to see the hardships in the trenches and have the families in the home front see that, especially dead bodies. So this became, taking a camera like this, this became uh, illegal. You could actually be courts-martialed by having this camera. Uh, so many men just decided not to have them. Some still snuck it in and took great pictures. Uh, some of the pictures that we have from the Great War are from these type of cameras. In Germany, the story was a little bit different. The Kaiser loved and encouraged the army to share and document the war through the lens of these cameras because he was confident that Germany would win the war. That being said, if you were fighting for Britain, by 1915 the Vest camera was banned. Still, some soldiers risked breaking regulations and recorded these precious snapshots that turned into historical gems for succeeding generations. Faces of war, frozen in time. As the war bled through into 1916, and all continued efforts to conference for peace failed, the technology of death ever advanced, introducing more effective ways to kill. The gears of war were moving faster and faster, and all sides in this great conflict were struggling to keep up. You know, when I was a kid, uh, building these type of toys were actually uh, something I was actually pretty good at and proficient. Um, in my rapid aging, um, this took me a long time to build. This is actually a Mark I tank uh, toy printed on a 3D printer, and uh, it is really pretty cool, I'd say so, and I'm going to finish it right now and add a little bit of the uh, early 20th century technological know-how to the back of this Mark I tank. Uh, the British put these things together in 1916 and they weren't very good. Um, and that's not saying they didn't put a lot of thought into this. As you can see, he's got turrets and uh, giant tread and, and it could house about eight men and go about a whopping 3.5 miles per hour across no man's land. If you can imagine what the Germans saw in this, it had a, a, a fleet of five or six at one point coming across the horizon 
over the barbed wire and the trenches, it would have been kind of a really uh, interesting thing to see. Oh, interesting and scary at the same time. But the te technological advancements of World War I just came year after year, month after month. There was something new that was always showing up on the battlefield. And things like the tank by 1916 to 1918 became better and better. But really, it was something that was much simpler. Simpler in the sense of barbed wire. This right here is an example of that. This here is something that was so impenetrable by both sides of the conflict that it lasted throughout the war and caused a great deal of havoc. You couldn't bomb it, you could barely cut through it, and uh, it really made no man's land just that, no man's land. After the first Battle of the Marne, soldiers dug out a network of trenches and thus a no man's land between the armies was created. This rolling man-made forest of barbed wire spanned hundreds of feet into this no man's land and stood in places about six feet tall. One of the interesting parts of World War I was the technological advancements uh, from flamethrowers to mustard and chlorine gas, uh, the Big Bertha guns and the, and the Paris gun, uh, to give you some examples. But what I'm holding here is actually a piece of history. And this was actually found in the Ukraine on the Russian front, um, the eastern front of the war. And it's over 100 years old, uh, what they called an invincible wire. It's kind of a, a, a barbed wire that has been wrapped three times around for each barb. It was very much inexpensive, but this stopped so much advancement and put, to, put together the quagmire that we know as World War I, this simple piece of wire. So let's take a look at what this is all made of and why it was so invincible. Barbed wire produced three main results. To stop or hinder frontal assaults with its entanglements, prevent enemy forces from getting close enough to lob hand grenades, and help to funnel the attackers into an area whereas they would be in the line of deadly machine gun fire, the perfect kill zone. And later, the invention of the landship, or tanks, helped to negate the effectiveness of the barbed wires. Yet at the height of the Great War, this inexpensive weapon proved itself indispensable and stood as a hallmark of the bloody tug of war for the mere yards of no man's land. These images of entangled bodies trapped among forests of metal wires are still burned into our collective consciousness when we talk about trench warfare in the Great War. On part two of the Great War Revisited, we conclude our look back with a visit to the Somme and the deadliest single day of combat for the British Army, as well as the toll this campaign had on the soldier and those he left behind. Past access returns to Belgium and the flooded quagmire hellscape of Passchendaele, where the Canadians have all they can handle between the enemy and nature. We will examine the important role animals had in this conflict. In particular, the heroics of a carrier pigeon that saved a surrounded and beleaguered American force in 1918. Finally, we make our way from France to Prague to remember the Czechoslovak legionnaires fighting their way through Siberia during the Russian Revolution on their way to a newly established home called Czechoslovakia. All this and more on the conclusion to Past Access presents The Great War Revisited.
have been listening to the Bohemian podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dawn, proud members of the Agora Podcast Network.